Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's mid-morning, Saturday the 5th of September 1936 and Sydney Harbour sparkles in the spring sunshine. At the number 10 wharf at Walsh Bay, the Burnsfield liner Marinda readies to steam to Lord Howe Island. While this is its regularly scheduled route, today is a little special because 27 of its 54 passengers are the cast and crew of the new movie Mystery Island. To mark this departure, well-known Sydney press photographer Samuel Hood is training his camera on these folks. Sam Hood clicks away up on deck, capturing the film's leading lady, Jean Laidley, smiling in her smart cream-knit dress and matching hat. The photographer also takes pictures of director Joe Lipman and producer Jack Bruce. Down below, in a saloon, he captures everyone together as they raise their champagne glasses during a farewell party. With the boat due to depart at 11, Sam says his goodbyes and heads back to the wharf. There, standing in the crowd of family, friends and film fans, he takes a picture of Mystery Island's people amid other passengers, waving from Marinda's upper and lower deck railings as a tangled rainbow of streamers strain on their way to snapping before the steamer makes its way up Sydney Harbour. Of the happy snaps taken this day, the most poignant are of Brian Abbott, the movie's leading man, and his real-life leading lady, wife Grace. In Sam Hood's photos of their farewell, the young couple are all big smiles as they gaze lovingly into each other's eyes. What the camera can't capture is the secret they share. Marinda isn't just taking the movie people and their tons of equipment to Lord Howe Island. The 260-foot steamer's cargo also includes Brian Abbott's newly acquired motor launch. This boat measures just 16 feet from bow to stern. Grace doesn't like it. Not at all, but her husband, the star of Mystery Island, plans to sail solo back to Sydney 
in this little vessel that he has perhaps named after himself, calling it Mystery Star. I'm Michael Adams and this is part three of the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. I'm releasing installments weekly, but if you're a supporter of the show, you can hear the whole story now. Supporters also get access to two amazing side stories that arose from the research that went into this episode. One, released this month, is about a horrific 1909 shipwreck, and the other, coming next month, is about an unsolved murder from 1927. Supporting only costs a few bucks a month, and it'll help me keep this podcast going. For information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or just click the link in your show notes. We can't know what Brian Abbott was thinking as Marinda steamed under the Sydney Harbour Bridge and past Benelong Point's tram sheds. But there's a good chance he looked out at the city and he looked at the Man of War steps and envisaged himself returning there in Mystery Star to far more fanfare than Marinda's departure had just generated. A solo voyage across the Tasman in a 16-foot motor launch. Newspapers love stories like that and the adventure would be even more noteworthy for being undertaken by a movie star. Brian Abbott had been planning this for a while, long enough to have Mystery Star designed and constructed by Erskineville boat designers and engine builders Chapman and Chirac. They'd been a trusted maritime business for 30 years now. Brian Abbott's dealings with Graham Chapman, company co-owner and frontman, meant he would have heard all about the company's other boat, the Pup. This vessel is key to unlocking the Mystery Star mystery. That is, why did Brian Abbott ignore advice and set out in such a small craft from Lord Howe Island? Pup was a 16-foot motor launch equipped with a a 2.5 horsepower Pup engine designed by Chapman and Chirac. It was virtually identical to Mystery Star. For all intents and purposes, it's sister ship. In September 1936, Pup's adventures had been recounted in Australian newspapers for more than a year. And right then, in fact, Pup was on another epic ocean voyage. So, while Marinda takes Brian, Jean, Leslie, and the rest of the Mystery Island cast and crew out through Sydney Heads, we're going to hear the stories of Pup and its two captains. Gordon Doherty really could have been Brian Abbott's brother from another mother. He was born in August 1909 in Victoria, so he was less than a year younger. As we heard in part one, Brian ran away from the Rickard Bell home in Bondi fairly regularly, even if he only got as far as nearby caves at Ben Buckler. Talk about amateur hour. On the 21st of March 1924 in Melbourne, Gordon Doherty, aged 14 and standing just 4 foot 10, left his home in Windsor to go to his job in the city. Gordon didn't return home that night, or the next day, or the day after that. Gordon was an indulged only child, and his parents were absolutely beside themselves. The police searched everywhere and questioned everyone. No one knew anything. Mr. and Mrs. Doherty didn't give up hope that their boy would be found alive. Four months later, on the 1st of July 1924, they enlisted the help of Keith Murdoch. This hands-on editor of Melbourne's Herald newspaper revived the case. Under the headline, Missing Boy Mystery... Where is Gordon Doherty? The Herald article described what he'd been wearing when last seen and said that he had no reason to run away because he was from a happy home. But there was this, quote, Affectionate in disposition, he was clever beyond his years, 
with a passionate love for the country and country pursuits. This may offer a clue as he frequently expressed his hatred of city life and he wished to return to the country where the family had lived. The Herald ran Gordon's photo. He was just a little boy, dark hair, dark eyes, and surely in their darkest moments, his parents feared that he'd met foul play. With an eye to publicity, Keith Murdoch's paper asked, Can a couple of hundred thousand Herald readers become amateur detectives and do what the police confess has proved beyond them? Thing was, Herald readers couldn't find Gordon either, but the article generated a lot of letters and phone calls to the Doherty household. Mr Doherty spent hundreds of pounds and travelled thousands of miles following these leads. All of them were dead ends, and some of them were cruel hoaxes. Cut to a year later. After yet another hoax phone call, this one about Gordon being desperately ill in a hospital, Mr Doherty went back to the Herald. On the 20th of July 1925, the paper ran the basics of the story and again printed Gordon's photo. A week later, a reader in Tasmania wrote to say that the boy had been living in Hobart, but he'd left in January that year with a woman who'd promised him work in Sydney. The letter writer included this woman's address in Milson's Point. Mr Doherty got the first train north to Sydney. He rushed to the address and he couldn't believe his eyes. The entire street was gone. Demolished. Raised to make way for the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Mr Doherty was heartbroken at being the victim of yet another heartless hoax. But he was here now, so best to make the inquiries that he could. Mr Doherty went to the Mossman Police Station and a kind detective there volunteered to help. They searched electoral rolls for the name of the Milsons Point woman. Turned out she was real and they found her current address. Tracking her down, the woman said yes, the boy had come to Sydney with her and she'd gotten him a job with the company. But the woman hadn't seen him for months now. Mr Doherty went to visit the company and was told that a boy fitting his son's description had worked there, but he'd already moved on to a new job. Mr Doherty was able to trace him to this new job and finally he got a home address. He and the detective turned up at this place on the 9th of August, the day before Gordon, if it really was Gordon, was due to turn 16. At the house, they were told the boy wouldn't be back until later that night. Mr Doherty explained to the Herald, quote, I didn't know if it would be he. We waited. At 10.30, the boy arrived home. It was he. Though I would never have known him in the street. He had grown and filled out ten and a half inches in 18 months. He thought I was a ghost at first. Mr Doherty was overjoyed, as was Mrs Doherty. So what had Gordon done? Well, he'd run away to Tasmania with a few pennies in his pocket and spent the rest of 1924 scraping together a living doing whatever port jobs he could get. Then he'd come up to Sydney to continue his adventure. But why had he done it? Gordon told the Herald, quote, I wanted to see the world and once I was away, I wanted to stick it out till I'd made good before I returned. All was forgiven, but it seemed that the prodigal son didn't come home for long, if he did at all, and he never lost his taste for adventure. Like I say, he and Brian might have been good mates, and though there's no evidence they met, I feel certain they became aware of each other's exploits in the early 30s. Eight years later, 1933, Gordon Doherty was living in Sydney. Like many men, he was unemployed. Gordon and his mate, Tom Connor, decided to escape the Great Depression with their own epic canoe trek. 
they were going to paddle the length of the Murray River from Albury in New South Wales through Victoria and into South Australia where it met the sea. 1,500 miles. That was twice what Brian Abbott had done as George Ricard Bell in 1931. Had Gordon read about George and Charles's 700-mile canoeing adventure? We don't know, but the story had made the Sydney papers. For Gordon and his mate, assuming they lived that long, the last bit of their odyssey would be the most dangerous, with the Murray Mouth in South Australia said to be as fearsome as Bass Strait. This had never been conquered in a canoe, at least as far as Europeans knew of their own stories. Gordon and Tom's canoe had a sail and enclosed decking for a sleeping space and water tanks. The two men had 30 pounds between them. They carried fishing gear, rifles for hunting and a camera so George could take photos to accompany the articles he hoped to sell to newspapers. Like Brian Abbott and Charles Boswava, they told the press they were go-getters hoping to go get some work. The Wagga Wagga Daily Advertiser on the 11th of August 1933 reported, They've been out of work for some time. It is their intention to offer themselves for any work that might be available en route. Once they were underway, the Coro of Free Press wrote that they were doing this, quote, rather than loaf around and be a burden on the state. They left in mid-August, and for the next four months, they had all sorts of adventures. Having gone ashore at Echuca to hunt foxes, Gordon had that classic explorer experience where he was sucked into a mud hole up to his armpits. His mate Tom had to use saplings in a rescue that took three quarters of an hour. There was starvation, sinkings, swampings, sharks and snakes. Way too many snakes. Like this one, as Gordon wrote. Near Swan Hill, we were paddling along when I suddenly noticed a snake poking its head from underneath the decking. It was coming toward me, so I immediately dived overboard. Tom, who was in front of the decking, paddled furiously for the bank. We tipped the canoe up and I shot the snake. It was a lucky escape. By the 17th of December 1933, they'd made it to Murray Bridge, a distance of 1,366 miles, only for their canoe to then be badly damaged in a gale. They had no choice but to remain there while repairs were made and reconditioning done so they could tackle the treacherous waters of Lake Alexandrina that stood between them and Gulwa and the Murray Mouth. By now, though, they were out of money. Melbourne's Herald reported, quote, the two men have now completely exhausted their finances and are endeavouring to sell advertising space on the sales of the canoe to Adelaide business houses. There's no record of whether they raised money this way, but it was an initiative that advertising student Brian Abbott would surely have appreciated. Gordon and Tom set out again on the 19th of February 1934. They'd barely left when a gale overturned their canoe and they had to be rescued from the water by the very boat builder who'd made the repairs that now had to be redone. Tom Connor was unable to continue after that. It wasn't explained why in the press. There's a good chance he simply didn't fancy drowning. Gordon Doherty, though, he wasn't giving up. Gordon found another canoeing mate, a former Navy man named Edward Hearn. They made it to Goolwa. From here, they were to enter the Murray Mouth, and likely it had swallowed them whole. Gordon, who parlayed his adventures into big journalistic features, wrote a piece for the Adelaide News in which he said, quote, this portion of the Australian coast is regarded by both landsmen and sailors as one of the most dangerous spots to be encountered. The locals certainly thought so, Gordon wrote. 
impossible, suicide, madness, said the wise old Gulwa fisherman. But Gordon knew there was more to it than his own bravery, his skill, and the strength of the canoe. He continued, They were leaving out one important factor which is so necessary in an adventure. The element of luck. The element of luck. Gulwa sea salt said, Don't do this. Gordon didn't listen. It was very, very Brian Abbott. Over the coming days, Gordon and Edward's luck held, despite threats from a shark, waves that pounded the canoe so badly it sprung a leak, and seemingly impenetrable breakers that made their progress agonisingly slow. But on the 14th of March, 1934, Gordon and his mate made it. He wrote, We slid alongside the pontoon at the outer harbour at exactly 7pm and were congratulated by the caretaker for being the first canoe ever to accomplish such a journey. Gordon Doherty had done it. Seven months, 1,500 miles, alive and well. Was Brian Abbott aware of Gordon's canoe trip? Given he'd undertaken a very similar voyage, and given his love of sea adventures, it had seemed likely he read the widely published articles about the Murray River trip, and perhaps even the big features that Gordon wrote about his adventures. Upon completing his journey, Gordon, just as Brian had back in 1931, immediately wanted to double down. Next, he said he was going to paddle his canoe from Adelaide to Sydney. That was 2,000 miles. It didn't happen. But his next idea was even more of a doozy. Gordon was going to canoe, solo, from Sydney to Hobart and, having rounded Tasmania, go on to Adelaide. But he wasn't going to paddle the whole way. In Sydney, Gordon went to see Chapman and Chirac about fitting one of their pup engines to his canoe. Graham Chapman and his business partner, Joseph Chirac, were astounded at this young man's plan, because it was insane. They offered him the next best thing, or, depending on your viewpoint, the next worst thing. As the Sun would later report, quote, Admiring Mr. Doherty's enterprise and pluck, however, they suggested as an alternative that they should provide a special 16-foot motor launch for the voyage. This offer was accepted, and the pup was built. The Melbourne Herald had in July 1924 asked the question, Where is Gordon Doherty? In May 1935, a Sydney Morning Herald headline asked, Who is Gordon Doherty? It helpfully provided the answer. Quote, Well then, we'll tell you. Gordon J. Doherty is a young Sydney journalist, always on the lookout for unusual stories. His latest search after novel copy will take the form of a 4,000-mile ocean cruise in a small motorboat. Now, here's something for you hard-boiled marine motorists to chew over. The craft chosen for this arduous voyage is a 16-foot Chapman launch with the famous 2.5 horsepower Chapman standard pup motor. If that sounds like an advertisement, it's because it was. Graham Chapman chartered the pup to Gordon and would use his voyage to spruik their business to other would-be sailors. Pup was built with an enclosed cabin 6 feet long that had a single berth. That engine held just six gallons, but Chapman boasted Pup would run for six and a half hours at full throttle on a single gallon and was capable of five knots an hour in still water. Gordon's reserve petrol supply would be contained in two-gallon tins. If he ran out, he'd have to rely on a 20-foot mast and sail. Gordon Doherty was going to carry a three-month supply of food and water to sustain him on those long intervals between ports. He had no radio, but he was packing a typewriter and a camera. For company, Gordon said he'd be taking his dog. 
a pup on the pup. Cute, if incredibly dangerous for the dog. Gordon would write about his voyage exclusively for Sydney's The Sun, and his progress would also feature in Chapman and Chirac's regular advertisements. One of these, on the 25th of May, urged Sydney siders to come and quote, join in farewelling this 20th century Viking the following Saturday at 2.30pm from Farm Cove. When the day rolled around, Saturday the 1st of June, Gordon was raring to go. Reporters were there, and so was a newsreel camera, to film him in the pub. There was a chorus from the wharf, Where's your dog? Gordon replied, He's here, and held up a fluffy toy dog. Someone asked why he wasn't taking the real deal. Gordon replied, Why, I've hardly room for myself. He wasn't exaggerating. Sitting in the little cockpit aft of the short cabin, Gordon looked positively oversized. He was nearly six feet tall. The boat was only ten feet longer and it sat so low in the harbour. Pup's draft, the distance from the waterline to the lowest point of its hull, was just two and a half feet. Gordon hugged his mother, then, to cheers and waves, he set off. Gordon was a member of the Australian Motor Yacht Squadron, whose members gave him a salute from their boats before forming a 26-vessel procession behind Pup. It was a spectacular send-off from Sydney Harbour. The Sun reported that Gordon and Pup, quote, bobbed quietly away to become a lonely little dot on the horizon. Now he faced months and months alone on the Tasman Sea and on Bass Strait. Well, not quite yet because Gordon was only out to sea off Bondi when he hit bad weather. The 20-foot mast made Pup unsteady. The boat would roll too much and take far too long to recover. So Gordon came into Botany Bay and sawed it down to 14 feet for greater stability. Then, off he sailed again for many, many adventures. These included a terrific storm that saw him try to get ashore at Naruma. During this nightmare overnight ordeal, Gordon spent five hours diving into the dark sea to pull kelp free from his fouled propeller. Trying to make the Naruma landing before sunrise, the hull was stoved in and the pup filled with water. Gordon fired a flare and got help from a man working a dredge. This man helped him to safety. Gordon had cheated death, not for the first time and not for the last. He had another long battle to get to Lake's entrance in his half-submerged boat. Reaching the crowded jetty, Gordon couldn't walk because he'd been buffeted by the sea continually for the past five days. From Lake's entrance, Gordon made a non-stop 20-hour, 90-mile run to reach Port Welshpool. He wrote for The Sun, quote, it was like riding a buck jumper all the way, owing to the bumpy sea. Though Gordon had lashed himself to his craft, he claimed not to have been afraid because he had complete faith in Pup. But the big test lay ahead, Bass Strait. Gordon reached White Mark on the west coast of Flinders Island on the 30th of July. He left the next day and soon after sailed into a cyclone. Nothing was heard of Gordon for three days. Then it was six, then it was nine. Some headlines from the 9th and 10th of August, 1934. The Sun is missing. Lone adventurer struck cyclone. The Newcastle Sun, long voyages silence. No news of Mr. Doherty. The barrier minor, missing for nine days. On the 13th of August, Gordon and the pup popped up alive and well. Popped up, as the Sun headline read, like cork. 
Gordon's article recounted how he'd been tossed around by a gale before reaching Flinders Island and then caught in another one off Vanistart Island, where he'd had to shelter for a week. Quote, My troubles were not over, however, for after calling it Cape Barren Island and Swan Island, I was almost swamped on the bar at St. Helens. A big wave curled over us. I thought I was going to have to swim. My trip nearly ended right there. But the pup got through again and deserves the few days rest that we are now enjoying. We do have fun. The pup ran perfectly right through. She has been so economical that I had sufficient petrol for another 150 miles on reaching St. Helens. Rain, hail, gale, massive seas, stoved in and swamped boat, Gordon Doherty remained the best ambassador possible for Chapman and Chirac. Gordon Doherty sailed down the east coast of Tasmania, arriving in Hobart in the third week of August. He was seriously warned that Pup would not survive Tasmania's west coast. But Gordon begged to differ. He said, quote, I have no fears on that score. I am convinced that a small boat, properly handled and properly constructed, can provide a safer conveyance in rough seas as the biggest liner. On the 10th of September, Gordon was welcomed by members of the Port Signet Yacht Club. Though their dinner was a happy occasion, one dignitary said he was going to need a lot of luck for the next stretch. On the 24th of September, Gordon made it to Strawn, but it had been touch and go. After everything he'd already endured, this had been the worst stretch. Quote, Bruised and so tired that I needed medical attention, I have arrived here after passing through the worst storm since leaving Sydney. He continued, All Sunday night and throughout Monday and the early hours of Tuesday, the pup was bashed about unmercifully. At times, it was dumped almost bodily from the crest of one huge wave to that of another. Any previous storms I had experienced were mere trifles compared to this nightmare. The boat is severely strained and is leaking badly. My engine saved my life, although it was repeatedly awash. Pup needed extensive hull repairs before Gordon could go on. Chapman and Chirac's advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 5th of October said the engine hadn't missed a beat despite being partly awash for two days. That seemed to be true. But the ad also told readers, quote, Now Doherty is on his way to King Island in Bass Strait. That wasn't true. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Gordon Doherty intended to leave on Sunday night or on Monday morning, but first, a little fun with friends he'd made at Strawn. On Sunday afternoon, Gordon took five pals out on Macquarie Harbour for a short pleasure cruise from Strawn Dock just across the bay to Regatta Point. His passengers were William and Cecilia Hodgetts, their only son Guy, aged 11, their 14-year-old niece Joyce and 22-year-old friend Anne Abel. Around five in the afternoon, they were coming back to the wharf. There was a bit of wind and light rain, and the water was turning a little choppy. 
Compared with what Gordon had been through though, Macquarie Harbour might as well have been a pond. But now, there was a problem with that never-fail engine. Anne Abel took the tiller while Gordon investigated inside the cabin. They were 75 to 100 yards from the wharf when Pup turned suddenly and then rolled. Everyone was flung into the icy cold water as Pup went all the way around to capsize. William helped his wife and niece to the upturned hull and they clung to it. He called out for his son. Gordon Doherty yelled that he had young guy Hodgetts. William cried out, for God's sake, stick to him. What seems likely is Guy said he'd swim for the shore. And in that split second, Gordon agreed and struck out to save Anne because she couldn't swim. Across the harbour, two fishermen saw what was happening and started rowing frantically to the rescue. On shore, a woman watching all of this unfold started screaming, which brought a police constable named J.R. Cunningham running to the wharf. Chapman and Chirac had designed Pup to right itself in the event of a capsize. This, and the weight of three desperate people clinging to the same side of its upturned hull, saw it quickly flip again, so it was right side up. William, Cecilia and Joyce were flung off. By the time they'd come to the surface and were swimming back to the vessel, the fishermen had arrived in the rowboat to rescue them. All up, it had been ten desperate minutes. But now, looking around, Gordon Doherty and Anne Abel were nowhere to be seen. Young Guy Hodgetts, though, was still swimming for the shore. The police officer dived in and swam towards him. Constable Cunningham was 25 yards away when the exhausted boy slipped beneath the surface. Little Guy was retrieved fast, but not fast enough that he could be resuscitated by the constable and a doctor. Gordon Doherty and Anne Abel were long gone by the time their bodies were found. This tragedy was news all over Australia. Constable Cunningham would write to the son saying he was sending Gordon's property, including his papers, back to Sydney. Quote, I feel very sorry for Mrs Doherty in the loss of such a fine young man. I only knew him for 10 days, but looked upon him as a friend and one who, if he had not met with such a tragic end, had a great future before him. However, it may comfort her that her son gave his life while trying to save one of the party who was unable to swim. At the coronial inquest held in mid-October, William Hodgetts gave his account, suggesting that Anne Abel may have turned the tiller too fast and this had made the pup roll and then capsize. Yet, from his description of where they'd all been arrayed along the boat, it also seemed possible that the weight of six people could have upset the balance. Evidence at the inquest suggested the three victims had drowned so quickly because they'd been in such icy cold water. The coroner praised Gordon Doherty as a hero for giving his life to try to save Anne and Guy. After cheating death again and again on a wild river trek and in a tiny launch on the open seas, this adventurer had perished in the most bizarre of circumstances. The Bernie Advocate's headline simply read, Fate's Grim Trick. We don't know if Gordon believed in fate, but as we've heard, he invoked the element of luck as being crucial in such adventures. Luck, obviously, went both ways. Miraculous survival on one side of the coin, freakish accident on the other. Had he known that the sea was going to kill him, would Gordon have stayed at home? Just before his death, Gordon had written a poem whose sentiments Brian Abbott would have understood perfectly. It was among the papers sent up to Sydney from Strawn by the constable, and it was published in The Sun at the end of November 1934. Titled The Call of the Sea, it concluded, quote, Give me storm or gentle stern wind, 
Give me ease or grant me pain. Weariness or thirst and hunger, let me put to sea again. By the time Gordon died, Brian Abbott was a rising stage star and soon to have his first film role in Thoroughbred. But he'd never stopped hearing The Call of the Sea. Neither had 52-year-old Sydney taxi driver Wally Pankhurst. Wally had been born in Newcastle and gone to sea in 1903 as a deck boy, spending the next 15 years under sail and steam and getting his chief officer certificate. For the next 15 years, Wally dreamed of an epic solo voyage. In 1934, he decided to do something about it and drove a taxi for the next two years to earn the money he'd need. After Gordon Doherty's death, Chapman and Chirac salvaged Pup from Strawn. Unsurprisingly, their advertisement since hadn't mentioned the ill-starred sailor who'd previously been their most famous customer and beloved spokesman. In April 1936, when Brian Abbott was being cast in Orphan of the Wilderness, Wally Pankhurst went to Graham Chapman with a question. Could he charter pup? Wally's plan was to sail it from Sydney to Thursday Island and back, a voyage of 4,000 miles. He told the Daily Telegraph, quote, I am not a bit superstitious regarding the previous tragedies associated with the pup. I am using the same engine, which has been reconditioned. Explaining his motivation, he said, Two years of taxi driving in Sydney made me long for the quiet of the sea again. That, and perhaps his wife and five kids. Wally would, in his estimation, be getting a six-month break from the city and from domestic affairs, because that was how long he expected it to take for him to make this massive return trip. Wally was going to carry 14 gallons of petrol that he said would give the boat a 400-mile range, and he'd made arrangements to pick up supplies at dozens of ports on the New South Wales and Queensland coasts. Some parts of the journey, though, he admitted would involve four days between ports. But, quote, It may be rough in parts, but I've rounded the horn, and I'm not worried. Wally took Pup out for trials in and around Sydney in a variety of conditions. He told the Daily Telegraph, the boat has proved herself to be quite seaworthy, and I have sufficient faith in the engine to discard the mast and sailing gear. But Wally was smart enough to be fitting Pup with a receiving radio. Local stations would give him a bit of weather information, and far-off stations from Asia or South America might provide a bit of interest on those long, lonely nights. Should something go wrong, the radio would also give him some idea of whether anyone was looking for him, and where. In a move that would have made Brian Abbott blush as the turf director, Chapman and Chirac now used Wally's pup voyage to anchor their advertising. A lengthy blurb in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 9th of May bore the headline, quote, The famous motor launch pup goes into commission again. This ad said that sea veteran Wally Pankhurst had selected pup above all other boats to make his Thursday Island odyssey. Quote, he will use the original pup engine that put up such a remarkable performance last year and which has not had any repairs whatsoever in spite of its 2,000-mile trip under the command of the late Gordon J. Doherty. The late Gordon J. Doherty. If you didn't know any better, you might have thought he died of old age. The thing was, most Sydney folk didn't know the exact details of how Gordon had perished. While his adventures and his death had been big news, the coroner's inquest merited only two small articles in the Sydney press that I've been able to find. 
One was in Labor Daily, the other in the Daily Telegraph. And neither mentioned the evidence that Pup had encountered an engine problem and that this had caused Gordon to give the tiller to Anne Abel immediately before the accident that killed him, her and the boy Guy Hodgetts. As far as articles and advertisements went in the Sydney press, the Pup's Pup engine had just kept going and going and going without ever having any sort of problem. On the last day of May, a year shy of the day since Gordon Doherty had left Sydney Harbour, Wally Pankhurst piloted Pup from Rose Bay Boatshed to the cheers of 1,000 spectators, this crowd including his wife and gaggle of kids. Wally was photographed in his skipper's cap and jacket, another captain who looked too big for this little boat. Like Gordon, Wally was escorted by a fleet of yachts from Sydney clubs. Wally Pankhurst told reporters, quote, I have the greatest faith in the tiny craft and I am confident that she will behave herself in any class of weather. While Gordon Doherty had written for The Sun, Wally would be writing for Sydney's referee newspaper. In his first week out, Wally got sucked into a whirlpool off Broughton Island, which trapped him for a while before he used the tiller to break free. Wally wrote he thought this was kind of funny. Less funny, though, was hitting a sea 20 feet high off Camden Haven Heads. Quote, I thought that was the end of the trip when another terrific wave got me. If the engine had stopped, I would have gone. But the engine ran and ran. Chapman ads again provided updates combined with their sales pitch. Here's one from the Sydney Morning Herald on the 4th of July, 1936. Quote, Imagine it, 600 miles through terrific seas and ocean storms have been covered on the present voyage without one atom of trouble or the slightest mechanical defect. Wally Pankhurst says, Although I was at sea throughout one dreadful night of storm, the little engine unfailingly ticked over hour after hour without missing a single beat. Half of that little blurb was in all caps, so it really jumped off the page. In Wally's fourth dispatch for the referee newspaper, he told of how he'd been surrounded by whales off Coffs Harbour. This pod of leviathans were on all sides of Pup, threatening to smash him until he whipped out his rifle and started firing. One of the Moby Dicks took a hit and scrammed, and all of his whale mates took off too. Just another close call for Wally and for Pup. In mid-July 1936, it's hard to believe there was anyone in Sydney who was more receptive to these articles and advertisements than Brian Abbott. By now, he'd finished Orphan of the Wilderness. Mystery Island had been announced. Though the real location was kept secret from the public, it would have been decided pretty quickly. That was because the producers needed the permission of the Chief Secretary, Frank Chaffee, to film on Lord Howe. This politician's portfolio included the island as well as film censorship. As we heard in the previous instalment, Frank Chaffee was the man whose ban had stopped New South Wales filmgoers from seeing Leslie Hay Simpson in When the Kellys Rode. With Mystery Island approved to be filmed on Lord Howe Island, Brian Abbott went to see Chapman and Chirac. Given how they worked their advertising, it's highly unlikely that Graham Chapman fished out Tasmanian newspaper articles that gave details of the inquest that went into far more detail about how Pup's engine may have failed, and how the vessel's size might have made it prone to rolling even in still water if the tiller was turned too fast or weight was unevenly distributed. But Graham Chapman would have ensured that Brian knew all about Pup's successes if he didn't already know from newspaper reports. Brian was sold. He ordered a boat just like Pup, except better. What to call it? He was the star of Mystery Island, so 
Why not Mystery Star? As Mystery Star was being built, Brian surely kept tabs on Molly Pankhurst's updates in Referee Newspaper. They really were amazing adventures. One of the most remarkable things he reported seeing during those first three months of his voyage was a battle between a whale and thresher sharks just 50 feet from his little boat. Wally's other exploits included shooting a 12-foot-long sea snake and getting stuck in mud on crocodile-infested coastline. When Wally reached the Great Barrier Reef, he went angling with Zane Grey, the American author and big-game fishing enthusiast who was there starring in his own shark movie called White Death. Every port Wally pulled into, he was treated like a celebrity. Crowds bombarded him with questions. One thing they all wanted to know was how he kept awake as a solo sailor during those long struggles to get to a safe port. Wally told them he had an alarm clock which he just kept setting. Right at the end of August and the start of September 1936, Wally Pankhurst was again trying to stay awake with that alarm clock for days on end because he was battling big seas trying to get from the Whitsundays to the safety of Bowen on the mainland. By now, Chapman and Chirac had finished Mystery Star in Pup's Image, but Brian's boat was newer and sturdier. It was decked over completely except for the aft cockpit opening of 24 inches. Included in Mystery Star's equipment was a stout waterproof canvas apron which could be laid down securely over this opening, hardly leaving enough room for a man's head and shoulders to project. When this was in place, Graham Chapman said, it would be almost impossible for Mystery Star to be swamped by a following sea. At the aft end of the cabin was mounted a spirit compass in an electrically lit binnacle. The boat was also equipped with a radio receiver, and it was fitted with two buoyancy tanks so it would float with a foot of freeboard even if it did become completely swamped. And these buoyancy tanks also meant it could carry the weight of an extra passenger with all of his or her supplies. Not that Brian was going to need that because he intended sailing from Lord Howe Island to Sydney by himself. Mystery Star's engine held six gallons of petrol. Brian's plan was to take another 40 or so gallons in tins. All up, Graham Chapman said, this would power the boat's engine for 10 days straight at 5 knots an hour. This gave it a theoretical range of 1,380 miles, more than twice the distance from Lord Howe to Sydney. But these figures were calculated by Graham Chapman, whose commercial interests saw to it that he based them on calm water and near-perfect conditions. The boat's possible weakness, which even Mr. Chapman allowed, was that if it took on a large amount of water, the magneto that sparked the engine might be put out of action. As a backup, a spare engine had been stored in such a way so that its magneto was as high as possible. Even if the boat was full of water, Mr. Chapman claimed, this spare and its magneto would not be immersed. Further, having learned from the late Gordon Doherty that a tall mast made the boat unstable, Mystery Star was fitted with a shorter mast and a 10-foot leg of mutton sail. Graham Chapman emphasised that Mystery Star would right itself in three seconds if knocked off balance. He went so far as to say that Mystery Star was basically unsinkable. Brian Abbott took his planned adventure very seriously. He went to the factory where the pup engine was made so he could get instruction on how to operate and maintain it, take it apart and put it back together again. Brian also took a similar vessel outside Sydney Heads in rough weather as a test trip. He told Graham Chapman that he was going to check Mystery Star's mounted compass thoroughly with that of the Marinda before leaving Lord Howe. Even so, Brian knew the risks. 
On the 3rd of September, he took out a £1,000 life insurance policy and made the first payment of just over £4. Brian didn't tell his insurers what he had planned. Two days later, on the 5th of September, 1936, Brian and Grace were posing for Sam Hood's camera on the deck of Marinda. By then, Wally Pankhurst was a week overdue into Bowen, but this hadn't been reported in the newspapers. So when Marinda sailed, what Brian Abbott knew was that in Mystery Star, he had a better version of Pup. If Pup had survived months at sea, covering thousands of miles while battered by cyclones and everything else, there was no reason to think Mystery Star couldn't cover a fraction of that distance in a matter of days from Lord Howe to Sydney. Brian Abbott had, as George Rickard Bell, cheated death at sea more times than he could count. He'd come out unscathed, and he'd gone on to marry a great girl and launch a career as a movie star. Brian Abbott could be forgiven for thinking, I was born under a lucky star. And he didn't just think it, he was going to say that exact line on Lord Howe Island in his role as the hero of Mystery Island. Well, young fella, I see you brought the young lady safely through. Good lad. You see, I was born under a lucky star. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Part four will be released next week, but Forgotten Australia supporters can hear the whole story right now. To become a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. The sources for this episode include interviews with Brian Abbott's family, hundreds of newspaper articles found at Trove, family tree information and records found at Ancestry.com.au, files held at the National Archives of Australia and the National Film and Sound Archive, and the book Lord Howe Island Rising, which was written by my mother, Daphne Nichols. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. 